Matthew 4, 23, the miracles of the Messiah. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Twenty years ago now, HBO aired a program called A Question of Miracles, in which investigative reporters infiltrated a Benny Hinn healing crusade to see if any of the people who were supposedly healed were actually healed. They found that none of them were. The filmmaker, Anthony Thomas, was interviewed the next morning by CNN anchor Kyra Phillips, and at the conclusion of the interview, she asked him, Anthony, before we let you go, I have to ask you, do you believe in miracles? Now, I wish he had just been honest and said no, but instead he tried to sound spiritual and replied, yes, I believe in miracles, but not in miracles of instant physical recovery, I believe a miracle has a much deeper meaning. And that means that when life really hits us hard, when we discover then the resources, the friendships, the relationships which enable us to deal with all that and to find meaning even in our worst suffering, to me, that is a miracle. Now, whether that comes from God or something you call the strength of the human spirit, that's a matter of faith. Kara Phillips replied, definitely, whether it's God's grace or the strength of the human spirit, it's all about your faith, I guess. Now, look carefully at what's going on here. The investigative reporter concluded that Benny Hinn had performed no miracles and then concluded from that that there must not be any true miracles at all. And then he attempted to sound spiritual by redefining miracles in sentimental terms and, and really stripping the word miracle of any real meaning and significant historically in the process. But his whole dismissal of miracles was bogus. It's actually based on a logical fallacy that we refer to as a non sequitur. Uh, non sequitur is an argument in which the case presented doesn't actually lead to the conclusion that is drawn. In Newsflash, just because Benny Hinn doesn't perform miracles doesn't mean that there are no miracles at all. The reason that Anthony couldn't find miracles is he was looking in the wrong place. Rather than looking to the ministry of this televangelist, he should have been looking to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And there he would have found miracles galore. Our study of the Gospel of Matthew has brought us now to a section of the Gospel which briefly summarizes an amazing number of miracles performed by the Lord Jesus. And as we look at these, I want to analyze this text in light of three important questions. The first question is, why should I believe that Jesus performed healing miracles? Since the Enlightenment, the very rejection of the possibility of miracles has become commonplace and widespread. Some people are now so skeptical of miracles that if you say you actually believe that Jesus cleansed the leper or Jesus actually made the blind to see and the lame to walk, they're going to look at you as if you are the kind of person who believes in Bigfoot and alien abductions and think you saw Elvis at Walmart last week. They're going to think that you've lost your mind. And this skepticism in Western culture is due in part to the lingering influence of the philosopher David Hume, who wrote a book called Inquiry Concerning Understanding. And there were several major arguments that Hume leveled against miracle claims. The first one was that alleged miracles had never been witnessed by a large enough group of observers to ensure that the witnesses has either not been deceived or were not misleading others. This argument cannot be used to dismiss the miracles of the Lord Jesus. It is evident in this passage alone that there are scores of people who are bringing the sick and diseased and injured to the Lord Jesus from all over the Mediterranean world. And Jesus doesn't just heal some of them. He heals all of them. He heals every ailment, every disease. And no other so-called healer has ever done such a thing. In the so-called healing crusades of the televangelist, there are a few people who will be healed, but they have typically been very carefully screened. Many of them will have psychosomatic illnesses and so forth, but Jesus is not just curing people of psychosomatic conditions here. Among his healing miracles are miracles like cleansing a man of advanced leprosy, where his flesh is terribly disfigured by lepromatous leprosy, as we will eventually see in our study of Matthew. And Jesus simply says, be clean, and instantaneously that diseased flesh is replaced with flesh that is fresh and clean as if it had never been diseased before at all. Or Jesus walks into the synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand. My grandfather, uh, Dr. Chester Quarles, had a withered arm because he suffered from poliomyelitis as an infant. I, I know what this condition looks like very, very well. Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand, and right there before the eyes of everyone in the synagogue, the arm lengthens, 
New muscle wraps around the fortified bones. New nerve endings develop, and the scripture says that that hand became as healthy and whole as the normal one. And Jesus performs miracles like this, in which we don't have to think, well, maybe this all happened in a person's mind and that kind of thing. Obvious, self-evident, supernatural acts again and again and again, and he does it not before few, but before the multitudes. The evidence that Jesus performed these healing miracles is so great that none of his early opponents ever challenged the fact that he had performed them. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Somebody preaching the gospel talks about Jesus Miracles, nobody folds their arm and says, oh yeah, he never did that stuff. What do they argue? They argue, well, yes, Jesus performed miracles, but he did it through the power of the devil. Uh, Jesus was not a man of God, a prophet. He was not the Messiah. They claim he was just a sorcerer. He had traveled to Egypt and learned the black arts and he came back to Israel unleashing the power of black magic. Now, the Lord Jesus unveils the ridiculous nature of that dismissal of his miracles. The Pharisees say that he cast out demons, the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, and Christ says, that makes no sense at all. If I'm using Satan's power to thwart Satan's work, then Satan's kingdom is divided against itself and it will not endure. Don't you think that the devil is smarter than to shoot himself in the foot this way? Similarly, it's a ridiculous argument to claim that the Lord Jesus performs his miracles through the power of the devil because in his miracles, he is consistently accomplishing not evil, but good. His miracles are expressions of love and kindness and compassion. They are contrary to the very nature and character of the evil one. So why would Jesus' opponents argue not that Jesus never performed miracles, but instead admit that he performed them and then try to pin them on the power of the devil rather than the power of God? Well, they resort to this ridiculous argument because they know that denying that Jesus performed miracles was an argument that would never succeed because thousands and thousands of people in their day had witnessed these miracles with their own eyes and there was no denying them. Hume also argued that people generally wish for a display of the supernatural and tend to believe accounts of the miraculous more readily than they should. Now, I should be quick to admit that that's sometimes the case. There are certainly imaginative and gullible people in the world who are eager to believe any old tale of the supernatural. But does that accurately describe Jesus's followers? Absolutely not. On the contrary, account after account in the Gospels and the book of Acts shows that Christ performs miracles when his own disciples least expected them. 
Think of what happened, for example, after the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas is absent in that Sunday evening meeting when the resurrected Lord appeared to the other surviving members of the 11 now. When they report to him that they had seen the resurrected Lord, he said, sorry, I cannot believe unless I put my hand in the wound of his side and place my finger in the print left by the nails in his hands. Christ, of course, does appear to Thomas. He has the opportunity to do just what he insisted upon doing, and he falls on his face before Jesus and cries out, my Lord and my God. But Thomas is not the only doubter among Jesus' closest disciples. When we get to Matthew 28, we find that after the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead, he calls for the 11 disciples to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. And when the disciples see the resurrected Lord, Matthew tells us they worshiped him, but then he candidly admits, but some doubted. We see the same kind of thing when Jesus comes walking to the 12 disciples on the Sea of Galilee on the surface of the water. And when they see the Lord Jesus walking on the water, how do they reply? Oh, it's about time. We've been expecting you to arrive this way. No. According to most of our translations, Matthew 14, 26 says they could not believe their eyes and they assumed that it was some ghost or vision, that kind of thing. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 12. Simon Peter is imprisoned and he's about to be executed by the order of King Herod. And the church has prayed fervently for Peter's miraculous release. He is miraculously released from prison and he goes knocking on the door of the home where they're having the prayer meeting, begging God for Peter to be spared. And when he shows up at the door, everybody assumes that it can't possibly be Peter. He must have been killed by Herod, and this must be his spirit now showing up. And here's my point. It is arrogant for us to think that people in the first century Mediterranean world were so gullible and superstitious as to think that miracles happen all the time, they occur every single day. No, even Jesus' own disciples were as skeptical at times as any modern day agnostic. And yet these disciples adamantly insist that the Lord Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle because they witnessed them. They saw these events with their own eyes and they knew them to be true. Finally, Hume argued that miracles occur only among primitive and superstitious people. Here again, we see this smug arrogance of modern-day people assuming that all people in years past must have been idiots, must have had no common sense or critical thinking skills. 
No modern day person would believe in miracles, Hume claims. Well, hold on just one minute. That has been definitively disproven. Back in 2003, which is the most recent time, unfortunately, I can find this kind of detailed data, a Harris poll was conducted that discovered that 84% of American adults believe in miracles today and 72% of those with postgraduate degrees, that is they have a master's degree or a doctorate, believe in miracles as well. And that's after most of us were steeped in a naturalistic worldview and modernist philosophy through 12 years in a public school and then through another four years at a state university. And yet after all of this brainwashing, the vast majority of Americans still insist that God performs miracles. Why? Because they've had too many experiences of the miraculous to check their brains at the door and buy into the conclusions of naturalism. Either they have witnessed miracles or people that they trust implicitly have shared their accounts of miracles and they are convinced that they have and do occur. If we had time to open up the floor and invite everyone to the microphone this morning, I think that we would probably hear one amazing account after another of miracles that we have personally witnessed in this room. I have more accounts than I could possibly share in our time today. Let, let me just share one. In my last full-time pastorate in Memphis, Tennessee, one of our deacons had a daughter who had had a massive brain tumor. And before I came to the church as pastor, the tumor had been removed by surgeons. She had gone through years of monthly scans to make sure that the tumor had not recurred and everything was clear month after month. And one day the deacon stepped into my office grim-faced and said, it's back. I didn't have to ask for an explanation. I knew exactly what he was saying. The tumor was back. It was in the same location as the previous tumor, but even larger. And he said, the surgeons are saying that they're going to surgically remove the tumor again but it has grown so fast. The tumor is so aggressive. Her prognosis isn't good. And he said, we don't understand. The last surgery went so well that we thought it was God's answer to our prayers for her healing. And now the tumor is back and we're not sure that God ever heard our prayers at all. Before he left the office, I got on my knees beside him and I prayed that God would grant comfort and peace to the family, that he would keep Amanda from suffering pain, that the family would be very conscious of God's presence with them and, and love for them. But I will admit, 
I purposefully did not pray for her healing. And the reason was simple. It was clear that his faith was already devastated by the recurrence of the tumor. And I feared that if I and the people of the church prayed for her miraculous healing and the healing didn't come, their faith would be devastating. But as soon as he left my office, I fell on my knees and I begged God, show me what to do. For the next several days, I prayed, I fasted, asking God for clear guidance. Lord, did they need a shepherd who was wise? I need your wisdom. I don't have it on my own. And in those days, God granted to me what I can only describe as a firm conviction that he was going to supernaturally heal Amanda. So I asked the parents to meet with me again. I sat them down and I said, I believe that God is going to heal your daughter. And this is what I want to do. I want to end every worship service at Hickory Ridge Baptist Church by calling every people to kneel at the front of the church, and we're going to beg God for Amanda's healing. And I'm going to ask every able-bodied person in this church to set aside one day a week for fasting and prayer specifically for her healing. They said, Plaster, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I said, oh, there's one huge condition. I said, I want you to know that I didn't have an angelic visitation. And I have not heard an audible voice from God. I believe this is what God is going to do, but I could be wrong. And if God doesn't heal your daughter, I want your assurance that you're not going to be angry with him and say, God, you broke some promise to me. I want you to understand that this was just the misunderstanding of your pastor. That's on me. It's not on him. Do you understand? And they said, yes, yes, please lead the church to pray. And so we did. Day after day and week after week. A couple of days before the surgery was scheduled, another scan of Amanda's brain needed to be performed so that the surgeons would know the exact size and location of the tumor before they removed her skull cap and began their work. I went with the family to the hospital for the scan and sat there in the waiting room until the scan results were reported. It took a long, long time. The parents kept looking at each other nervously saying, the scans have never taken this long. What's going on? And the sense in the room was, it must be really, really bad. Finally, two doctors walked through the swinging doors into the waiting room up to the parents, and they have two sets of scans in their hands. First of all, they show the pictures of Amanda's original tumor. And they said, as you know, just weeks ago, 
This was the tumor, exact location of the former one. Here you see its size even larger than the tumor that we removed. And then they said, and here are today's results. No hint that a tumor had ever existed at all. And the doctors kept shaking their heads and said, we, we don't know how to explain this. We don't know how to explain this. You could tell they were completely baffled. And Amanda's mother spoke up and said, well, let me explain it for you. We have a church family that loves us dearly, and they have prayed and fasted for our daughter's healing for weeks now, and this is God's answer. I don't do Facebook much. My wife has a Facebook account. I do not. And one of the rare occasions for me to take a peek at her Facebook account is when Amanda and her husband now and her little children now show up on Facebook and I can see again the wonders that God worked in that family through his miraculous power. This is just one example of many that I could share. I share it because I, that's definitive proof. Scans before, scans after, God supernaturally healed Amanda, and he did so without any medical treatment that time. And he healed her perpetually. No recurrence of the tumor, even now in her adulthood. And the point that I'm making is, sorry, David Hume, you're just flat wrong. Yes, yes, modern-day people can believe in miracles because any philosophical views that we have embraced, we're always going to be constantly evaluating in light of our own experience. And my experience is that God has performed miracles and he does still perform miracles even to this very day. The next question is, what do Jesus' healing miracles tell us about his identity? And what I want to argue is that the miracles of Jesus are important, not only as expressions of his kind, compassionate, and merciful character. They put his identity on display as God, Savior, and King. You've heard those three titles before. I've argued that is the essence of the New Testament gospel. Jesus is God, Savior, and King, and the miracles of the Lord Jesus attest to every aspect of that identity. First of all, the miracles of Jesus show that he is the Messiah, the promised King. Notice that the Lord Jesus preaches throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that the kingdom has dawned because the king has arrived. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do his healing miracles confirm his identity as the messianic king? Well, it's because they fulfill the details of the messianic prophecy in Isaiah 35 verses 5 through 6. 
That text says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And all of these promises from the prophecies of Isaiah were associated with the coming of the Messiah in first century Judaism. And that's obvious uh, by studying the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in those caves at Qumran and a few other places in the Dead Sea environs. Manuscript 4Q521 quotes from Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, all of these healing miracles and says that they will be proof that Messiah has come. We see the same argument being made in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is languishing in prison. He's begun to wonder if Jesus really is the Messiah after all. And the Lord Jesus sends word back to John through his disciples. Tell John, the eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, the lame are being made to walk, and so forth. Jesus walks through the details of the Isaiah 35 prophecy and has the disciples report back to John that Jesus is performing those very healing miracles that must accompany the coming of Messiah. So Jesus' healing ministry shows that he is the messianic king, the king of God's people to whose authority we must submit before whose control we must bow. But Jesus' healing miracles also attest to his identity as Savior, the one whose sacrificial death will provide forgiveness for the sins of his people. In Matthew chapter 8, Matthew is going to refer to Jesus' healing ministry again, and then he's going to explain that Jesus' healing ministry fulfilled the prophecy that said, He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. That's a quotation of Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now, do you remember why Isaiah 53 is so very important in biblical theology? That is the song of the suffering servant. It says, when the Lord's servant, the Messiah, comes into the world, he will die as our sin offering. He will pay the punishment for our sins in our place so that we can be forgiven. That's the great prophecy that says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace was imposed on him. By his scourgings, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the clearest Old Testament prophecy of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross where he bore our sin guilt so that our sins could be erased from the sight of the heavenly judge, so that our sins could be separated as far from us as the east is from the west. 
and we could become righteous in the eyes of the Holy God. But not only did Jesus' healing miracles show that he is the Messiah, the promised King, not only do they show that he is the Savior who provides atonement and forgiveness, and there is no other way we could ever have it. His healing miracles also show that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Deity incarnate, almighty God in human form. Remember, when the angel appeared to Joseph, said, you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the angel says, all the events of Jesus' birth fulfilled Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and will give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God with us. And one of the great theological themes of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' deity. The fact that he is God in human form is spelled out on practically every page. And Jesus' healing miracles attest to that because in his healing miracles, he is doing what only God can do in order to show that he is God. Now notice that Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus performed all kinds of different healing miracles. He literally was healing every disease and every affliction. But then in verse 24, Matthew begins to spell out some of these for us specifically. He says, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons. But then he mentions two categories in climax, those having seizures and paralytics. Now, why are those two categories of conditions so very important? Well, because those having seizures is a reference to those who suffer from epilepsy. There was no cure in the ancient world for epilepsy. In fact, there is no guaranteed cure even today. Epilepsy is a common chronic neurological disorder that causes the nerves in the brain to randomly misfire and to trigger seizures. Epilepsy even now can't be cured. It can often be controlled with medications and in really severe cases with surgery, but while it can be controlled, it cannot be cured. In about 30% of cases, the medications don't even control the condition. And yet Jesus heals those suffering epileptic seizures and he does so with this simple command. Look at the next category. Jesus heals the paralytics, those who suffered from paralysis. Now, the rabbis of the first century recognized that some paralysis, if you want to call it that, could be healed in our lifetimes. But what they meant by paralysis is the kind of short-term paralysis that 
results from an injury like broken bones, where you can't use a limb for a long period of time and it loses its ability to function properly. But they were emphatic that long-term paralysis, paralysis that had gone on for years, was incurable. They described such paralysis using three different phrases. One, permanent. Two, beyond all remedy. And three, not subject to healing. Now, they didn't understand that the nervous system lacks the ability to repair itself that some other parts of the body possess. But they were confident that long-term paralysis was something that was incurable, period. The only rabbis who ever spoke of long-term paralysis being cured actually said that it was something that would only happen on Resurrection Day when God gave the paralytic a brand new body and refashioned it through and through. Only that miracle of creation on Resurrection Day could restore movement and strength to the paralytics. And so my point is that when Jesus healed those with epilepsy, he is doing what only God can do to show that he is God. When he healed those with long-term paralysis, he healed some paralytics in the New Testament that have been paralyzed for decades and decades. When he does that, he is doing what the rabbi said emphatically, absolutely impossible. This paralysis is permanent, it's beyond all remedy, it's not subject to healing. Although they admitted God could heal such paralysis, they said even he can only do it on resurrection day. And yet Jesus heals the paralytics and he doesn't wait till resurrection day. He does it in their own lifetimes. He is doing what only God can do to show that he is God. And Matthew emphasizes that in the way he phrases Jesus' healing miracles. Look again at verse 23. He says Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. And the word affliction could be translated sickness. Now, why is that important? It's important because what Matthew is doing here is actually conflating Descriptions from two key Old Testament passages describing the work of Jehovah, of the God of Israel. Deuteronomy 7.15 says, The Lord, and it's all caps, Yahweh or Jehovah, will remove all sickness from you. Then Psalm 103 verse 3 says, Yahweh heals all your diseases. And now when Matthew says Jesus healed all the diseases and all the sicknesses, his first century Jewish Christian readers would remember the fact that Jesus' ministry of healing is being described in terms of the ministry of healing that only Jehovah himself can perform. Jesus' healing miracles are important proofs of his claim to be our God, our Savior, and our King. 
The healing miracles of the Lord Jesus attest to the essential truths of the Christian gospel. Our last question is, who did Jesus choose to heal and why? Verse 23 says that the Lord Jesus performed these healing miracles among the people. And there he's referring to the Jewish people, the Israelites, those who were in the synagogues and who gathered on mountainsides to hear Jesus' teaching and to see his miraculous healings. But then verse 24 adds that Jesus' preaching and healing ministry attracted people not just from Israel, Judea and Galilee, but even from Syria. Syria, remember, is Gentile land. And then he goes on to say that people brought him all the sick, the, the they, in verse 24, who brought him all the sick includes the people from Syria in the first phrase of the verse. So Jesus is not just healing Jews, he's healing Gentiles. He's not just healing Israelites, he's healing Syrians as well. Then verse 23, great crowds followed him from Galilee, and remember, Galilee is predominantly Gentile territory, even though there's a Jewish presence there. But then he adds, and the Decapolis. The Decapolis is that league of 10 pagan Gentile cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he heals those from Jerusalem and Judea, but then also beyond the Jordan. Here he's probably referring to Perea, which again had a heavy Gentile presence. And here's the point that I'm making. Jesus didn't just perform these healing miracles that confirm the gospel of the kingdom, that he is God, Savior, and King to the people of Israel. He does it for representatives from Gentile lands as well to show that he came to be the savior of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's one of the huge emphases of Matthew's gospel. We saw it in verse one. Jesus is son of Abraham. That is, he's the promised descendant of Abraham who will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He is the seed through whom all nations on earth will be blessed. We saw it in the conclusion of the four Gentile mothers in Jesus' genealogy. We saw it in the summoning of the Magi from the east to worship the infant Christ. We saw it in Jesus settling in Galilee of the Gentiles. We'll see it when Jesus commends the faith of the Roman centurion, the Canaanite woman, and we'll see it when Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus came to be the Savior of all the peoples of the earth, and any who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus as God's Savior and King can be saved. It doesn't matter what culture they represent. It doesn't matter what land they came from. It doesn't matter what language they speak. Jesus came to provide salvation for all who will repent and believe. Back in 
1988, I took my first cross-cultural mission trip to Kenya, Africa. I worked in a medical clinic during the day, uh, sometimes preaching on the streets, and then preached in crusade meetings at different churches and in the open air in the evenings. The last few days of the trip, we had set up the medical clinic in a remote village, treated a lot of people. The medical team had packed up all of its stuff. The doctors, the nurses, and the helpers all left, and I stayed behind alone to preach in the crusade meeting that night. And my interpreter brought up to me a man who was obviously suffering terribly. One of his legs had been amputated. I don't know whether intentionally or by accident, but it was obviously fairly recently because a, a dirty cloth was tied by a rope around the stump, and it was obvious from the condition of the bandage that the injury or surgery, whichever it was, was a recent one. The man was wearing a pair of shorts but was shirtless, he had one crutch, it was a homemade crutch made out of the, a forked limb of a tree, some cloth wrapped around the top, and he placed that forked stick under his armpit and, and he had hobbled to come there to the medical clinic, obviously a long way, because the side of his torso and the other side of his arm had been rasped raw. He was wincing in pain as he stood before me, and I was stunned. And I immediately began to profusely apologize to him through the interpreter. I said, I, I'm so sorry, but you have arrived too late. The medical team just packed up all of the medical supplies, and they're gone, and they're not coming back. The, the doctor is left, and I'm no doctor. I, I don't know a thing that I could possibly do to treat you. And he shook his head and he said, but you misunderstand. It's not my body that is sick. It's my soul that is sick. And I have been told that you know someone who can make me well. I suddenly found myself ashamed that I had assumed that his physical need was greater and more urgent than his spiritual one. And as simply as I knew how, through the interpreter, I laid out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that man tearfully confessed faith in Jesus as God's Savior and King and was saved. He had not hobbled. 14 miles that day on that one crutch for physical healing. He had hobbled that great distance that day because he knew he needed a Savior. I am sure that there are plenty of people who are listening to me right now who are afflicted by all kinds of ailments 
And I wish that I could say to you, it's an absolute guarantee that Jesus Christ is going to supernaturally heal you. I can't make you that promise. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. And how he operates sometimes mystifies me. I know that he does sometimes heal physically. I've witnessed it with my own eyes. And when he does, it is a powerful testimony to the truths of the gospel. After Amanda's supernatural healing, our church, that at the time ran about 250 on Sunday morning, baptized 63 new believers that year. And there were many things that God did to bring that number of people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but one of the primary ways that he worked was through that miracle. Because everyone in our community suddenly realized that when we talk about Jesus' identity as God, Savior, and King, these aren't fairy tales from some old dry, dusty book. This is the truth. And we can stake our eternity but as much as I would like to promise everyone physical healing today, and I cannot, there is a healing I can promise. I promise you that you can have the healing that that Kenyan man received. That if you will hobble to the Lord Jesus and you will fall on your knees, and you will repent of your sins, and you will confess faith in Him as God, as Savior, and as King, as His miracles proved Him to be. Your soul can be made well. Your sins can be forgiven. Your life can be changed. And I assure you that that is a far greater miracle than any physical healing I have ever known. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? First of all, to you who need spiritual healing, would you please come to Christ today? Repent of your sins now. Say, Lord God, I am so sorry for the ways I have rebelled against your authority and insisted on living my life my own way. Forgive me for all the commandments that I have broken, for all the wrong that I have done. And confess faith in Jesus. Confess that he is the Son of God, almighty God in human form, as his miracles here demonstrate. Trust him as your Savior. Recognize there's nothing good you can do to earn God's favor, to make up for the sins of your past. Recognize that Jesus suffered the penalty for your sin in your place so that you can be fully and completely forgiven. Trust Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross alone for your salvation. And then submit to Jesus' authority as your king. Recognize that he is the promised Messiah who has the right to rule 
and reign over our lives and yield your life to him to live his way and not your way any longer. And when you repent and when you believe in this way, you have the promise that your soul is healed at last. It's the greatest gift you'll ever receive, and I invite you to express gratitude for that gift by coming forward in just a few moments when we sing together and telling me or one of our church leaders that you want the free gift of salvation. We'll tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life, and we'll celebrate that God has shown to you the same mercy and compassion that he's shown to every other sinner in this room. And now to you folks who have received spiritual healing, can it be that you read about the miracles of the Lord Jesus with skepticism and you're even more skeptical of his power to hear and answer prayer today? I pray that this reminder of Christ's great power would move you to pray more faithfully and fervently to pray trusting him to do what is best and all wise but pray recognizing he has the power to do what anyone else might view as impossible pray that God would display his power as we pray in Jesus' name in such a way that it would remind the world around us that this book is not a fairy tale, but this word is true and trustworthy. Dear Father, we commit this invitation to you. We ask you to move sinners to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus we ask you to move your people to greater faith. For your glory and yours only, in Jesus' name, amen.